Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, Episode 11, the Pleasure-Seeking Knuckleheads Edition. I'm Scott Tobias, editor of Dissolve. It's been a month since our last podcast, and so many topics have been building up in the meantime that we're skipping the game in 30 seconds to sell this week and jamming in as much discussion as we can. First up, the controversy over Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street has spilled over into our office, which is sharply divided between those of us who love the film and Tasha Robinson. <laughs> then the new Tom Clancy movie, Jack Ryan's Shadow Recruit, directed by Kenneth Branagh, has us thinking about filmmakers whose careers started off promising one thing and wound up delivering something very different. And finally, members of the Dissolve staff will share what they watched over our two-week holiday hiatus. Stay tuned, Dissolvers. Tasha Robinson and I have a long history of disagreeing with each other on movies. No, we don't. Uh, Tasha. Oftentimes, oftentimes those disagreements are minor, like our different levels of sympathy for the Lewin Davis character in Inside Lewin Davis, a film we both love. But every once in a while, there's a case like The Wolf of Wall Street. I put Martin Scorsese's scabrous comedy about off-off Wall Street excess at number seven on my top ten list and would probably place it higher after seeing it a second time over the holidays. Uh, Tasha hated it with the intensity of a thousand suns. We were able to avoid throwing down over it before the holiday break, uh, so I'm not sure why she hated it, and frankly, I'm a little terrified to find out. Uh, Here to fight it out in the Dissolve podcast octagon is Tasha Robinson. Hello, Tasha. Hi, Scott. So what the fuck? What the fuck, Tasha? What's going on? Two critics enter, one critic leaves. Yes. And Genevieve watches the whole thing as a producer. <laughs> well, here, here's the thing. I mean, I uh, most of what I've heard from you has been along the line of uh, size, eye rolling, and sure. this is a masterpiece. Well, also, I did write a long review of the piece. Of that the is true. Mm-hmm. And then I read your review, okay. and of course, I read the uh, the summary in when it made our top 20, which it didn't even make my top Hundred, I would say. Hmm. Um, I did not hate it with the intensity oh, of okay. a thousand white hats. I've mischaracterized you. I gave it two stars on Letterboxd, mm. but I think the sort of the core uh, difference between us is when we walked out of the film, you were energized, you were yes. excited, you said that you had just seen something fantastic. Mm-hmm. I was bored throughout. I would say at least two thirds of that movie. And I considered if I was not seeing it for critical purposes, I might've walked out because I found it so tedious and I'm not alone in that. I've been reading uh, a bunch of the, the word on this film has been very, very mixed, Mm -hmm. but some of the reviews I've been reading, like Michael Phillips in the Tribune or David Edelstein of Vulture use the word monotonous. David Edelstein uses, uh, called it thumpingly insipid. Um, yeah. The, it's been a hugely polarizing film, and what I'm finding is that the negative reviews that I've read have very much hit the same points that I'm going to hit, which is I found it repetitive. I found it redundant. I found it grating. I found it very, very familiar in, within the course of Martin Scorsese's work. It didn't say anything that I haven't heard from him multiple times before, but it did, and it didn't say it in a new way. It just, it was completely uninteresting to me. Well, I mean, that's, that's, it is interesting actually to, get, to talk about the debate over the film uh, in general. I mean, the debate of the, uh, over the film is, is about something else. It's about whether the Wolf of Wall Street, you know, glamorizes uh, criminality, uh, which I think, which is an eye, which I think you're rolling your eyes at that. I rolled my eyes at it uh, just a little bit. Here's the thing. I've been reading a lot of those reviews and I think the idea that that's the core of the debate has been a little overblown and is more from headlines than anything else. Mm. I think once you dig deeper into it, like whether it glorifies criminality is not a debate that I'm that interested in. But I think the degree to which it does glorify criminality is entirely in keeping with Scorsese's interest in criminality and that the degree to which he really enjoys what these guys are doing 
leads to what's actually wrong with the film, which is that there's just, there's way, way too much of wallowing in excess and not actually going anywhere, either from a character point standpoint or from a narrative standpoint. Well, that, that's the, the, maybe it's that, this is something the second viewing clarified for me, is that, is that the film, in fact, does move forward. I mean, it feels like, you know, I mean, I've, I've read some comparisons to it of, of something like Fellini Satiricon as of being, of being Scorsese just doing, doing that Italian thing and just, just, just presenting us with this parade of excess. Uh, but, when you, but, but when you watch the film, really, one scene really leads into another. It is not, it is not a film that, that's, that spins its wheels, even though it seems to, you, you seem to imply that it, uh, that it does. Right? I really do feel that it does spin uh, it with uh, its wheels. Because everything has a purpose. I was like thinking about, you know, w- watching it again, like what would I, what would I cut? You know, let's say, let's say I want to bring this thing down even more from, from, from three hours. It's like, well, maybe that whole, there's a, there's a little subplot involving his sort of gay um, servant and, 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 you know, this, this party the guy has and, and the, you know, money gets stolen, et cetera. But then that, but then, uh, and I think there's a way. You know, it's it's probably my least favorite bit in the film, but but it actually does lead to something, which is that which is that which is this idea of of Jordan Belfort um, uh, putting stocking his cash away in these rat holes. Like that's that that's that's where that leads narratively, and and really, you know, when you watch the film, it really it does move forward, scene after scene. Everything everything it does have forward momentum. It just luxuriates in, in scenes in, in much the same way as maybe something like. Blue is the warmest color does, you know, and that's another three-hour movie. It's just, you know, he spends a lot of time, and each scene has has its own life, and it really develops into something um, wonderful in spots. I mean, I, you know, I was thinking about, um, you know, one of my favorite scenes of the year, and there are like four of them in this movie uh, that that would be candidates for me. Uh, you know, Matthew, that that first scene with Matthew McConaughey, uh, that sort of many martini lunch that he has with him. Uh, you know, the the you know Jordan Belfort in front of the the mob uh you know pushing the Steve Madden IPO uh, it would be another one that amazing and I hope you can see that this is a great sequence the the amazing uh lemon quaaludes sequence oh she's rolling her eyes my god I can't so believe it. hard I'm rolling my eyes but I, th- we'll get to I, that. I think that is that is just that is that you know is one of my favorite scenes of the year um and um Oh, there was a there was a fourth as well that I'm that I'm forgetting. I feel like uh, well, who's the governor? Who's the Texas governor? I forget that guy too. But he he, he had a problem with the third thing. Yeah, Rick Perry. Um, I got three things out of four. But uh, but in any case, uh, um, I, I like to you know the the scene with Kyle Chandler on, on the boat. I think is pretty remarkable as as well. Um, but uh, but but I don't know. I found the film so entertaining. I, I, it's so much fun. I you know it was so that was that was what was strange about your reaction. It, it had this thing. This weird, um, uh, what was it like? Uh, uh, you're a bit of a buzzkill, Tasha. I have to say, because I was feeling, I was feeling really excited and happy uh, after seeing it, and you were just so miserable. Uh, and I, it was amazing that we had such a strong, strong opposing reaction to that movie. Wow, there's there's so much to unpack in what you just said. I, I'm gonna see if I can get to it point by point. Okay. Um, okay, so to start with, your comparison to blue is the warmest color. Yeah, it luxuriates in its scenes in the same sort of way. But for me, blue is the warmest color was a film where I could relate to some of what was going on in that film. I'm not a 20-something French lesbian. Um, I, you know, I'm not, I am not one of those people. But there's a, there are core ideas there 
that I think are relatable. And those are the idea of falling in love with somebody from afar or developing a crush on somebody from afar and then getting into a relationship with someone and feeling your way through what that relationship means and then finding that relationship degrading and finding out what that means. Those are all relatable things. To me, there was nothing relatable in Wolf of Wall Street. I mean... Everybody, I think, in America on some level would perhaps like to be rich, but I would like to think that most people don't think that if they were rich, it would turn into an endless masturbation fest. And that, hey, 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 you you had your time. The scene with Matthew McConaughey where he talks about what the way to get through your life on Wall Street is masturbating at least twice a day and doing a mountain of coke. Mm -hmm. There was so much masturbation in this film, like right down to the, the endlessly long scenes. The whole thing just felt excessive and masturbatory to me in a way mm. that <laughs> the mutual masturbation in Blue is the Warmest Color did not. Oh, look at that. Nice tie in, Tasha. That's, that's impressive. So there you go. So I, I can see where every individual scene might theoretically accomplish something in Wolf of Wall Street. I'd have to go through on a, on a scene-by-scene basis. And I I'm, I'm, have really no intention of rewatching the film again anytime soon. Mm. I was bored the first time through. My feeling was that almost every scene was too long. The scene where, I, uh, to, to take an example that you gave that I think is a really interesting scene, the scene with the IPO with the shoe designer uh, says something really important about the culture of the uh, the company that Jordan Belfort made. They have no respect for somebody who actually created something. Their only respect is for people who who are engaging in this wild excess of money, money that they stole from people by lying to them, uh, by, you know, in, engaging their their will on other people. So it's a it's a fascinating scene, but it goes on forever. I mean, we get the point after the first couple of minutes of of throwing things and booing him down and calling him names, and yet it drags on and it drags on and it drags on. One scene of people banging prostitutes and throwing midgets at an office party was enough for me to understand what that culture was. We didn't need to see it again on the plane and again in his home and again in his office, yet still later over and over and over. And it became less like, I mean, the question of whether he's glorifying this behavior, it, it, it almost doesn't matter. What he's glorifying is his love of showing what happens when people engage in their worst impulses because they have the power to do so. And it just seems to me that like, as a result, you have what's happening with Baz Luhrmann, where all of his films feature wild parties, but it's like with Great Gatsby, the objection that everybody had was there was more he loved the parties more than he loved the story that explained why the wild parties existed. That's what I saw in this film. It's just this idea that it's so much more fun to show the bad behavior that results from power than to examine how he got there or how he got out on the other end. It's just, it's a completely unbalanced movie that doesn't tell a neat narrative arc so much as it tells the narrative arc of blow, but with an extra hour and a half of of masturbation. Not blow. To address the blue is your your point on blue is the warmest color. I don't think it's important that we identify with Jordan Belfort in the same way that we do with the with the with Adele in, in that movie. It's not. It's. I don't think it's important ever. Really, it's all all that's important is that we find um, these characters in this in this world compelling. That's it for me. So but I, I didn't. Yeah, that's the thing. But you. But, but I think you're. You're. But that's kind of uh, that. I don't know. I, I can't argue with that. I did. Um, but but I think what Scorsese is trying to do, and why these scenes are as long as they are, I suppose, and why the film is has indulges in this excess, is is to give um, 
the audience a very uh, visceral, very sensual, very um, I think energizing a sense of what this of what of what it's like to be Jordan Belfort, what it's like to be in this world of living on a very very fast track of taking of taking you know mountains of cocaine and, and alcohol and lewds and being on this on this ride. Um, you know, and, and, the, and the nice thing about the film is that it doesn't um, it doesn't engage. In, in the sort of moral tisking that people seem to want it to engage in is that it's it's really about it really trusts the audience to uh, understand that this de- behavior is deplorable but also uh, trust the audience to to understand that that um, there's a reason these people act the way they do you know that the, they're the, that they're pleasure seekers and that it's in that the film's job is to kind of communicate that um, and to me to me the film is just you know uh, it's a it's full of great tales, you know. It remind, remind me of uh, I mean, you know, Goodfellas is like that too. It's just a lot of like little great little stories um, from this guy's life that that he's ties together, and I think a narrative that for me, you know, moves moves quite well. Um, I mean, I guess maybe that's that's a fundamental dis- disagreement that we have about this movie about the pacing of the thing. But, yeah, um, I think that's just something that we're not gonna not but, gonna uh, come to terms but on. I, but I but yeah, but I thought I found it you know again, uh, I, I wouldn't want to lose. Too much from this movie. I did. I enjoyed it immensely. Oh, there's so much. Uh, there's so much. I would. I think I probably would have cut fifty percent of the scenes, fifty percent of the way through. You you cite that sequence with the quaaludes where mm-hmm. uh, Leo Leonardo DiCaprio is the flopping around like a boneless yes. fish, and you loved that scene. And I'm I'm baffled because to <laughs> me it was just it was such broad comedy that coming in the middle of what's theoretically a, a story about American excess, it was like I, I was I was watching uh, Goodfellas and then suddenly I was watching The Heat. I mean, oh. tonally, this movie is all no, over the not. place. No, it's not. It's completely in keeping with the, with the film, with the tone of the film, which is which is often really comic and funny. You know, I mean, it's I, you know, this is a this is a this is a film about knuckleheads. You know, who 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 knuckleheads who made a bunch of money. You know, uh, uh, but that's off, the, the off, movie that Scorsese keeps making over and over and over is knuckleheads who made a lot of money. And yeah, like Goodfellas, I enjoyed three times. Right? I mean, Casino, I guess. maybe. Yeah, but uh, when you look at the the number of hours of that film that he's produced, but I mean, I, I wouldn't want to give any of those hours back were well, those two movies too that's just it's just a, these are just the sorts of characters that he is interested in and and I think that the, the casino comparison to me you know is a meaningful one um, in that um, both films are about um, you know one film is about Las Vegas one film is about is about Wall Street they're both about um, outsiders about pe- you know thieves basically who are you know illegitimate people who are in these places and, and and the film, both films ask the question of like, why do we ex- why do we accept one form of thievery as as legitimate and one form is not? You know, I mean, what you know, and that's the that's the whole purpose of that McConaughey scene at the beginning is that is that he's taking that same ethos that you can just rip people off that that's that's what your job is that is that is a Wall Street cre- credo and he's taking that to, to 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 Long Island and what's the difference? You know, what is the difference between what he's doing uh, and and what 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 Merrill Lynch is doing. The difference for me is that I learned things from Casino. Like I, I boy, the endless narration. I'm so tired of Martin Scorsese's uh, storytelling via. <laughs> it was both of these films. I mean, Casino. I think more so than Wolf of Wall Street, but especially in the beginning, it's like listening to an audiobook that happens to have illustrations. There's so much having but it lo- everything the that's going on to explaining move, though, right? to you. 
the camera. It, it, it liberates the it liberates the camera. It, 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 it liberates the camera to go, uh, you know, watch endless scenes of prostitute banging. But I'm not learning anything at the very beginning of, of Wolf of Wall Street. Like the first hour or so, I was really interested in because it taught me things about like a, a particular period in time in terms of what the stock market was like, what Jordan Belfort did that was different, how he got to where he was. Mm -hmm. But then it's like a magic wand is waved and we're suddenly transported from, you know, this this room full of people who have never learned how to make a profit on penny stocks to, oh, by the way, I'm a billionaire. I've been making, I, I'm, I, I've been making $47 million a year and I'm pissed off because how dare it not be 52 so I could say I'm earning a million a week. That huh. is what is unrelatable about this film. Gaudy excess maybe is relatable, but the the aggressive mookishness of never being satisfied with anything, mm -hmm. which is what we see in all of Martin Scorsese's you know crime films, is just this idea that you can have everything that anybody could ever want. You could have more than anybody could ever want about anything and still ruin it basically by being an unrepentant, unsupportable, and to me, really uninteresting asshole. I just, I don't find that repeated narrative all nearly as interesting as Scorsese does. Yeah, I, I, was, I was with you until you said uninteresting. So I guess that's probably where we uh, divide up. Uh, Tasha Robinson, it has been a pleasure to debate you as it's always. It's always fun. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll do it again uh, uh, soon, I hope. I'm a little scared, frankly. <laughs> but, uh, you made it through this. But one. I made it through. Uh, thanks, th thanks to you. Um, all right. And, and Scorsese's going to be fine. The trailer for the new Tom Clancy thriller, Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit, touts the film as being from the director of Thor. It's hard not to laugh at that because the director of Thor is Kenneth Branagh, who once upon a time was considered Laurence Olivier's heir apparent in bringing Shakespeare to screen. Reviewers strained to draw a connection between the Branagh of Henry V and the Branagh who brought Shakespearean overtones to the mighty warriors of Asgard. But this was a reminder that artists don't always fulfill their initial promise, either because they've compromised themselves or because they've had a broader set of interests all along. So we thought we'd use this segment to talk about filmmakers whose careers haven't gone in the direction we might have expected. Joining me are... Nathan Rabin. And from Conway, Arkansas. Noel Murray. So guys, what, what, uh, give me some examples here. I mean, I, I have, I have a, a big one, but, uh, but let, Noel, let's start with you. Uh, I'm going to start with James Mangold, uh, who started off with a really fine indie drama called Heavy with uh, Pruitt Taylor Vets that was, you know, really measured and sensitive and about human feelings and human emotions. And uh, I think his most recent film was a similar vehicle called Wolverine, or perhaps, <laughs> or perhaps the, the Wolverine. The Wolverine, yes. One. He's the one who always comes to mind because I think he's somebody that when he first emerged, he seemed like he was part of a whole generation of, of mid-90s indie filmmakers who were going to make really daring and original films. And um, his his career arc since then, he's made some, some good movies, uh, both genre-bound and not genre-bound. I think Copland kind of falls in between those two, between being a sensitive indie film and a genre piece. But he, more, more often than not, he seems to be you know, migrating more towards things like 310 to Yuma, which is a, a, a very good film, but 
uh, not at all what you would think the director of Heavy would end up doing. Yeah. And to uh, to cite an obvious example, I think David Gordon Green uh, yeah. has another kind of quintessential guy like this, where he started off as this very indie, uh, you know, very kind of the heir apparent uh, Terrence Malick made these very lovely, very small little Sundancey movies um, like George Washington and All the Real Girls, and then became <laughs> this huge commercial uh, property after Pineapple Express and went, you know, big and broad and then kind of bottomed out with the film called Your Highness which was unspeakably awful uh, and caused me to think that he just spent years and years and years just churning out these terrible, terrible movies when it really is just a matter of like one or two or three films and then Prince Avalanche uh, I think totally kind of brings him back to the kind of filmmaker uh, that he was before. So I think with a lot of these it's, 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 it's a progression in a lot of ways more so than just kind of this random, uh, random, random developments. And you can kind of, with, with somebody like Green, you can sort of draw some connections between his Hollywood work and his in, in, indie work, his, his sense of whimsy and play. Uh, it's just kind of dr- taken to a larger scale. And then I think that just long working relationship with Danny McBride as well, carries over from one, one project to another. Um, oh, very much. I mean, Danny McBride, you know, he was really fucking funny. Uh, and all the real girls. Uh, to cite, you know, one of the earlier, sure. sort of more characteristic uh, films that he made. Sure. To me, the classic example uh, of this is uh, really Scott. Uh, because really Scott, I mean, you look at the first few films of his career, uh, you know, The Duelists and... Alien and Blade Runner, and you're thinking this is just going to be—he's going to be the greatest, you know, sci-fi fantasy director of all time. This is this is his niche, you know. You thought he was going to be, you know, sort of the greatest sci-fi fantasy filmmaker of his generation, but then, you know, uh, his interests seemed to broaden. Uh, he became a Hollywood director who could go from one project to another. That you know, I mean, I think you got you got that uh, Peter Mayles thing—a a, a good year, which is not. Oh, God, yeah. You don't really draw a line from Blade Runner to a good year. I don't, I can't. Well, he works with Russell Crowe over and over again, which I think is kind of one of the only kind of through lines on a lot of his work. Sure, but the, but thematically in, ter- in terms of genres, I mean, and then you've got The Counselor, which is, uh, you know, again, very strange, you know, sort of a left, uh, you know, sort of curveball. I mean, he's just all over the map. Um and uh, and I, you wonder, I mean, should we be, you know, it was, maybe it was wrong of us to impose certain expectations on people like David Gordon Green or uh, Ridley Scott when they just had different things in mind. Well, uh, one of the things that I interviewed uh, David Gordon Green not too long ago, one of the things that really kind of drove home was a lot of a filmmaker's career is predicated on what movies can get made. What can I get greenlit? Not a matter of what movie do I want to get made. I think there are so many movies that David Green, Gordon Green wants to get made that just are not commercially feasible. So I think a lot of you know these directors, what appear to be weird left turns, what appear to be random, are filmmakers making the movies that can get made, that can get seen, that can get greenlit in an environment that's really, really hostile to uh, independent visions, towards idiosyncratic visions. Yeah, I think I think overall it's maybe more of an anomaly to have filmmakers like Wes Anderson or, or mm. P.T. Anderson who basically get to make their auteur projects, you know, to basically have a filmography where they can stand behind every single film as a personal... Uh, distinctive piece of work as opposed to having to take a job to you know pay the bills 
Uh, I mean, I, I, although you know, it'd be kind of interesting to see what would have happened if if Wes Anderson had decided early in his career that to make money you would have to make like you know a, a conventional heist picture or yeah. something like that. <laughs> I, I think I would have enjoyed that in some kind of way. Yeah, yeah, it, you know, Wes Anderson being a little more of a director for hire or something. But but you know, but one thing though, it, it's a you know that should carry over, but sometimes doesn't is 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 style, a certain personal signature i mean that that's that's something that's missing i I don't know what kind of a signature james mangold has uh Mm -hmm. uh but david gordon green certainly does um and uh and it became a little bit hard it's a little harder to see you know to see the david gordon green of george washington in the sitter for example right Uh, right. uh, so uh so uh it's that that i guess that that's where things kind of get disappointing uh not that not that people have to kind of adjust and, and, and change and shift projects, but that they, they have to give up so much of themselves to do it. But at the same time, I mean, there is also examples of filmmakers kind of <laughs> deviating in ways that are really, really fascinating and obscure. I mean, after I heard Huckabees, David O. Russell seemed like the kind of filmmaker whose films were so crazy and so idiosyncratic, they couldn't really get made anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that his next project after that was a movie called Nailed. That was this really crazy, oddball, nutsy political satire uh, written by Al Gore's daughter, whose name is... Kristen? Kristen Gore, yes, exactly, Kristen Gore, which is pretty, like, yeah, again, the premise for it is really, really insane, like, look it up online, uh, because I totally cannot remember it now, and it did not get made, It, it, like two-thirds, and then it just it will never get released. Mm-hmm. And you, judging from that, you would never have imagined that he would rebound to become such uh, a commercial filmmaker and to make these incredibly crowd-pleasing uh, movies that just kind of hit the sweet spot, you know, your Silver Lining Playbooks, your Wrestlers, your American Hustle. I think that's been uh, his career evolving in, in a weird, interesting, very, very unexpected way, well, while also staying true to, you know, this kind of weird vision uh, that he's always had. Well, we had a piece that ran uh, last Friday by a- Andrew Lappin that was about, you know, his trilogy of reinvention, which is, which, uh, or he, his self-declared trilogy of reinvention, which includes The Fighter, uh, Silver Lining, Linings Playbook, and, and American Hustle. And, and Andrew's argument was that, you know, basically that Russell had reinvented himself as somebody Way, far more pa- palatable to, to Hollywood that, that he was right, somebody right. who had this who seemed like he was on his way to persona non grata status and, and that these films um, are successful and accessible but but have lost some of the uh, uh, you know things that distinguish them from other uh, from, from those earlier uh, David O. Russell movies oh yeah something was lost but something was also gained uh, as well so can we talk about Kenneth Branagh <laughs> uh, now that we you know we had that introduction only just, if we talk about Peter's friends. I just feel like oh man let's I, talk about Peter's that friends. was the thing that made me laugh at the trailer for Jack, <laughs> Jack Ryan Shadow Recruiters that I, I I would love to have just replaced that line from the director of Thor with from the director of Peter's <laughs> friends <laughs> I think that would be now, did, did, did Rita Rudner write uh, this this Thor uh, this uh, Jack Ryan oh, Shadow Recruiters the way she did, yes. Oh, that's right. She like co-starred and co-wrote <laughs> <did>. friends. But, <laughs> I thought there there was a, a, a pairing for for the ages. Well, I, I think I should contradict my own introduction here by saying, you know, the second film that Kenneth Branagh made was mm. uh, was Dead Again. Yeah, right, I mean, right. so it's not like he was he was you know on the Written by Scott Frank, who wrote The Wolverine. Really? Yeah. Wow. Which is like one of those things that was like, wow, like one of those like, wow, incredibly talented filmmakers working on something that doesn't have a whole lot of personality. Yeah. Interesting. I did. I did not know that. But uh, but it's not like, you know, he he had I think he had, you know, an impulse from the beginning to move around and do different things and not tie himself entirely to to, to Shakespeare or other classier production. Frank and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Oh, dear God. Oh, God. Um, (laughs) Yeah. 
Sleuth. God, he's just done so many bad movies. Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, but it makes you know it makes you think like you know. Did we misjudge him as being a more talented, uh, I, uh, you know, guy than he than he turned out to be? Or although uh, the fact of the matter is, if if Laurence Olivier uh, were alive today, I'm pretty sure he would be uh, in the movies Thor <laughs> and also Jack Ryan Shatter Recruit. <laughs> he was certainly not averse to uh, picking up a paycheck for being very hammy and over the top. So I don't think a lot of that's what this comes down to is you know to to, to beat on the drum, but people like making money <laughs> and yeah. you make money appearing in a genre well, I think they like to be vi- they, they want to be viable oh totally totally I mean even people like uh, like kind of know I think a lot of these people do have these kind of years in, in the wilderness like Noah Baumbach is an interesting example where he was a filmmaker who kind of came along and being in a very Whit Stillman uh, vibe you know the idea being that he makes these kind of very droll uh, sort of cutting uh, sort of social comedies about you know sort of the, the privileged and neurotic class and then reinvented himself uh, really, as as you know, sort of a Wes Anderson protege, making these incredibly bleak, kind of brutal uh, character studies, and then you know uh, had a yet another kind of reimagining, uh, sort of in more of a um, mumblecore vein with with Francis Ha and, and Greenberg. So yeah, I mean, I think people are evolving uh, in all kinds of different ways, and yeah, I, mean, I don't think I think this is probably the filmmaker Kenneth Branagh was all along. You yep. know, I mean, I think yeah, I think well, he'd like. What about you, Mill? Do you have, do you have a grand unifying movies. theory of uh, Kenneth Branagh? Well, no, I just think that maybe maybe we were uh, uh, pushing him in the in the wrong direction. I mean, you look you look at Henry V, and it's a movie with these big battle scenes. That was kind of part of the reason why it got so much attention is that it was a Shakespearean film that had these this sort of epic quality to it. It wasn't just stage bound. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he ended up making a series of actual Shakespeare adaptations that were more stage bound, like like his his version of Hamlet and, and his Much Ado About Nothing. So, you know, maybe he all along wanted to be a big grand action filmmaker and it just took a while for for Hollywood to catch up to him. I, I have another filmmaker also that's kind of an interesting case. And that's uh, that's Gus Van Sant. Oh right. uh, yeah who who started off as a you know very art house independent filmmaker and then he had that little stretch there in the middle of his career where he did the Psycho remake and Goodwill Hunting and Finding Forrester, and he seemed like he was on his way to becoming, uh, you know, a middle brow mainstream filmmaker. And then he followed it up with Jerry Elephant, mm. Last Days, Paranoid Park. <laughs> yeah, oh, it was so great. Uh, it. Made, it almost made that 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 time, and I'll call it the wilderness. And <laughs> the mainstream wilderness made made his, made his comeback with films like films like Jerry's that that much sweeter. Um, but um, well, I mean, you also have guys like uh, John Singleton. Who kind of came right. off with with Boys in the Hood and Higher Learning, the idea that he was this incendiary, important filmmaker who was going to make these sort of manifestos, and then kind of settled into a career as kind of a journeyman action yeah, too, filmmaker. Too fast, too furious. Too fast, yeah, too man. furious, like a bunch of stuff. That, yeah, yeah, uh, not not uh, not the not the result you'd ex- you'd have expected. Or no, and like Spike know. Lee is somebody who's been all over the place, but. Everything he does, no matter how muddled, no matter how misguided, like he's got his inky little fingerprints all oh, over absolutely. it. absolutely. You know, like every every Spike Lee joint, you know, kind of has him behind it, no matter what genre it is, no matter the scope, no matter what. Like he's somebody who no matter how, yeah, how far he ranges, you know, it's always it's always him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, Noel Murray... Nathan Rabin, my shadow recruits. Uh, <laughs> th- thank you for thank you for joining me. Thank you. Right, thank you, Scott. So we don't have 30 seconds to sell this week, sad face, but many of us spent our two-week hiatus catching up with movies, either movies we missed from 2013 or older movies that have been sitting in our queue. 
here to talk about what they did on their winter vacation is... Tasha Robinson. Nathan Raven. Keith Phipps. Tasha, let's start with you. Uh, you, see, you see some good movies uh, over the break? You saw some bad movies, I think. You, were, you, you had your sister who apparently likes to see nothing but garbage. Is that what my, get... my sister is a big fan of garbage cinema, and I only really get to see her twice a year. So uh, when I go back to Maryland for, uh, for the holidays, uh, we end up... It is really the cinematic equivalent of sitting on the couch and eating an entire can of Pringles. <laughs> we, we watch like usually one or two bad films a night. So um, I, I did watch a lot of, a lot of crap cinema. Uh, but then I came home and felt the need to get the taste of Pringles out of my mouth. Yeah. So uh, I caught up on a few things. The one thing um, that we watched from uh, from the week of Pringles uh, that I kind of wanted to bring up is a 2011 film uh, directed by Matthew Parkhill called The Caller. Um, this is not a movie that I loved, but it is a movie that I found pretty fascinating. It's a, it's a very, very cheap indie about a woman who moves into a new apartment and starts getting phone calls uh, from a woman who appears to be in the past, uh, calling her from from literally decades ago. Uh, she lived in the apartment previously, and it turns into a horror scenario. And I don't really want to say more than that because I don't want to spoil anything. But it goes in a very Looper direction on a like a fraction of Looper's budget, and it the the horror actually gets. I mean, it starts off as a just you know a, a, <laughs> the cinematic equivalent of not. Pringles, but somebody like making a film with a couple of friends in his own apartment, and it turns into something really chilling and and dramatic and impressive by the end. So, like for horror film fans or like people looking for something a little offbeat, I would actually recommend the Caller quite a bit. Hmm. Um, once I actually got to uh, good cinema, one of the things that came up entirely randomly on my Netflix queue as I was just churning through it. Um, was something that I'd actually moved up because of Keith's recommendation during the uh, the Unforgiven forum, and that's the Oxbow incident. Right. It's very. It's a very good film. I had never seen it before. You said some interesting stuff in the forum about uh, sort of the morality of that movie, um, and I it just it, I became aware that it was a hole in my film knowledge. I loved this movie. I mean, this is a movie that uh, kind of has all of the tension of uh, Twelve Angry Men in kind of a very similar setup, and again with Henry Fonda as a star. But he takes a very, very different role. You know, he he has some of the same elements of trying to talk a lynch mob into considering justice and, and reconsidering what they're doing. But it's a very Western movie. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's um, you know I, I joked about it having like a sort of, sort of like just making a moral point, but there's a lot more to it than that. It's a very well crafted narrative as well, and, and nice nicely directed by by uh, William Wellman. It's also it's, it's a terrific ensemble movie. I mean, there isn't it, it isn't a Henry Fonda movie so much as it really is like a pure ensemble. It has one of the best managements of a really large, potentially unwieldy cast I've seen in a long time. Um, so what's, uh, the, what's the third, Tasha? You, I know you, you saw a pretty big one from uh, 2013. Easily my favorite film from the, hi- the hiatus that I watched was uh, In the House, Francois Ozon, which uh, I believe, has everybody here seen that? Not yet. I have not. I have. Oh. I think people can watch it quite easily uh, on Netflix Instant if they have such a thing. Yep. I watched it on Netflix Instant. It came across really well. It's um, it's a film about, it's a French film about a uh, French teacher who one of his promising writing students starts writing this narrative about his infiltration of a classmate's house and how he's worming his way into their lives. And it, 
gosh, this film is so dense um, with with ideas about the relationship between the the teacher and the student. The teacher thinks he's teaching the student to write, but he's actually becoming this voyeur mm -hmm. into the student's life, and it it becomes this really complicated story about the intersection between you know, art and fandom and the creator and the recipient and teachers and students. But it's also, there's so much density involved in the relationship between the student and his fellow student and the family mm -hmm. and what fiction is doing for him and how it's helping him escape his life, but it's also trapping him. And in spite of all of the thematic density, it's actually a really light, exciting, thrillery film. Yeah, I mean, it has that Ozan Hitchcock vibe to it, doesn't it? And it's kind of got that... Um uh, the kid is just so diabolical, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. you just, you just don't know exactly what, you know, he's, he's your, he's your narrator too. He's not just, he's not just leading the teacher into this world. He's leading us into it as well. And he's pretty unreliable as narrators go. And, and, uh, and it, it is, a, it's a film that does kind of reflect, it's very meta kind of reflects on, on its own, um, on, uh, on just the nature of storytelling and and uh uh and you're right and it's it really sort of lampoons this 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 type this the this teacher who uh who uh has uh th these big intellectual ideas about about what it takes to be a novelist uh but he's just drawn into just pulp really mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and voyeurism as you say yeah uh, he i mean he thinks he's a great storyteller who's instructing a 16 year old but he's also i mean he's complicit in involving the 16 year old in like increasingly immoral activity because he's he's taken up by the thrill of it but he's putting it all in a very very high-minded sort of way which the film itself is also kind of layering a, a pulp plot with a high-minded uh, like artistic ideals and i think doing it extremely well it's a fascinating film. yeah and that, and that one actually landed at number 20 on our collective top 20 list uh for the, the dissolve and i guess i guess if more people had seen it such as yourself uh would have gone even even higher so uh uh definitely uh, highly recommended uh there um, absolutely nathan how about you uh i saw a pair of movies uh over the break and i also read a book by a film actor uh named Corey feldman uh <laughs> called choreography that was really really riveting and really dark and uh, kind of explores a lot of the horrible uh, sexual and, and physical and emotional abuse he endured uh, as a child actor and kind of really made me think of, of child acting uh, in a much different light and a much darker light it made me kind of feel like why why is this legal and it made me also made you sort of feel like child acting and that whole kind of industry that uh, built up around it is kind of a bit of a form of, 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 of child abuse and, and there's regulations but you know this book argues very uh, persuasively that it needs a whole lot more uh, regulation that yeah these children are kind of being left out on their own uh, when Corey Feldman actually talks about uh, his career his artistic process uh, his music he's got a prog rock group it gets pretty pretty painful then yeah um, but yeah the stuff about his childhood is Utterly, utterly, utterly riveting. Uh, yeah, really, really fascinating. I also saw some movies over the break. Sure. Um, they were just kind of on television. I ended up watching them somewhat randomly, one of which was Don John, uh, which uh, Tasha uh, loved a, a great deal. And I heard nothing but good things about, but I was very reluctant to see just because it belongs to one of my least favorite subgenres of movies, which are movies about uh, really good-looking guys who get laid too often. <laughs> and uh, Don John does sort of uh, embody that, but it also sort of transcends it. It's a lot more critical, uh, a lot more sort of searching uh, than I was anticipating it being. And, and good God, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is just charming as all, all, all hell. Uh, he's got a real eye as a director, uh, as a writer. Like, yeah, I was super, super 
super super impressed by what this can't film. he do what can't he do he can dance he can sing my god he's he's a, he's a titan that's what he is uh and i'm very excited to see what he does next and then uh i also saw the princess and the frog okay. um, the disney musical from uh, from a few years back yeah uh, which uh, i thought was utterly utterly delightful as well yeah. uh, funny and charming and wonderful songs and a lot of personality and boy i Really hope that Disney makes more uh, conventional animated films because that's uh, it's a real winner. Uh, I cannot recommend that one highly enough. So. Yeah, I like that it's one too. Stuff. It's it's uh, I I think that I remember the narrative being a little pokey at a certain point, but the song the songs are great. The characters are really winning. It's got a nice New Orleans feel. And, yeah, the look oh, is, the look of the the animation yeah. has a nice. I, I miss it. You know, I I, I miss the hand drawn stuff. I, I yeah. do hope, I do hope it's not gone for good. Uh, but I watched I watched a few films. Just kind of I was trying to clear out my DVR queue as much as possible. And I had I always tape things off a of TCM. And then, then I don't get around to them for months or sometimes, you know, longer than that if I get around to them at all. But uh, Peter O'Toole's death prompted me to watch My Favorite Year, which uh, oh. is a good movie. Uh, he's great in it, and it's a good movie. And you kind of find out, you kind of discover uh, why Marklin Baker kind of landed on television rather than a film star. His charisma is more for, of a small screen kind than a big screen kind. But Peter O'Toole is fantastic. And, and, um, so Cousin couple, Larry is not quite up to Peter O'Toole's. Uh. <laughs> Shockingly, no. And a couple of films that, that I'd never seen, um, in part because they were so, they've largely unavailable or hard to see for a while. And one was uh, Peter Panchali, which is Sajit Ray's first film. And, and mm-hmm. I probably mispronouncing his name, but uh, that's a filmmaker. I, it's a big blind spot for me. And this made me really want to embark on seeing more of his films. Mm-hmm. And uh, Safety Last, a Harold Lloyd film. I watched the Criterion uh, Blu-ray of that, and, and it is uh, fantastic and fantastically entertaining. And, and Lloyd, uh, apart from a big box set that came out a few years ago, his stuff has been kind of hard to find on home video, so I'm glad to see them uh, coming out through Criterion. And, and it was great, as, as they point out on, on, on the disc and the supplementary f- features, but uh, um, throughout, but it's, it's sort of, you know, he, you under, his reputation as a great silent comedian, which is obviously true, but uh, the narrative is very much a romantic comedy as well, which which he probably doesn't get enough credit for for being a uh, formative hand in, in shaping what we think of as a romantic comedy. So great, and and uh, and the famous clock stunt is as, as thrilling as uh, as uh, uh, as you might have uh, heard. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nice too to see Lloyd's reputation kind of be elevated to to the level of of a, of a Chaplin or Keaton. I think the Criterion release of that was a real revelation for a lot of people. Keith, have you seen uh, The Sin of Harold Diddlewalk? I haven't. Oh my god, I love that film. It's kind of his uh, sort of comeback movie with Preston mm-hmm. Sturges. Yeah, really, yeah. Really brilliant. Also, like a very formative influence on The Hangover, which is kind of pretty <laughs> much just a huge riff uh, on The Sin of Harold Diddlewalk. Highly recommended. All right, uh, Tasha, Nathan, Keith, thanks. Lots of, lots of things uh, for people to check out. That does it for episode 11 of the Dissolve podcast. Please join us in two weeks for more opinions, insight, and general tomfoolery. In the meantime, you can enjoy the Dissolve in Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and website form. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. And if you want to take sides on the Wolf of Wall Street debate, you can harass Tasha or myself on Twitter or in the comments section. Thanks for listening.